0: JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now save fifty percent on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: End game with the Iowa caucuses just weeks away.
2: Do you hear that sound?
1: That's the sound of us surging. The presidential race heats up. We gotta be sure that we put this thing away. And new reporting on Trump's role in a key Senate race. Plus, January jam. One of the most unproductive congresses in
2: history. Here's a reality. The institution is not functioning the way it should be. Wars, the border, and funding
1: fights. Could the stalemate get even worse?
0: And in the rough. At the end of the day, a man's going to make a decision what's best for him and his family.
1: Why one of the world's best golfers has drawn the attention of a powerful senator.
2: It's about much more than sports. American institutions and interests are at stake.
1: Inside Politics, the best reporting from inside the corridors of power starts now. Good morning. Welcome to Inside Politics Sunday. I'm Manu Raj. Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and 2024 is right around the corner. And with it, the Iowa caucuses, now just a few weeks away. And now the political and legal calendars are, calendars are colliding in an unprecedented way for the GOP frontrunner, Donald Trump. As his criminal trials loom, the former president now faces the possibility of getting kicked off at least one state's ballot. In a previous political lifetime, that would mean the end to a candidate's bid for the White House, and likely his career but Trump has used his woes as a rallying cry, now hoping to quash the fresh momentum of Nikki Haley, who has emerged as the leading Trump alternative. But polls show Trump with a sizable lead, and his team believes he could lock up the nomination as soon as mid-March, if all goes according to their plan.
3: We gotta be sure that we put this thing away.
1: The poll numbers are scary, because we're leading by so much. The key is you have to get out and vote. Don't sit home and say, you know, I think we'll take it easy, darling. It's a wonderful day, beautiful. Let's just take it easy, watch television, and watch the results now because crazy things can happen. Meanwhile, President Biden's team is not holding back in its attacks against Trump's rhetoric, continuing to compare his recent anti-immigrant comments to Hitler's. And despite those stepped up attacks, the polls still consistently show the same story. Biden's struggling to break through and convince voters he deserves a second term. And as he grows impatient over his campaign, his Democratic colleagues told me it's time for the president to step up his game.
4: Joe Biden's gonna have to be out there making the case, I'm gonna fight for you. And my policies are ones that have been ones that have supported you.
2: More has to be done more quickly and more expertly to essentially tell the American public about what this president has accomplished. What part of the coalition are you most concerned about? The young people. He's not polling well with African-Americans,
1: Hispanics. When you look at the polls, what concerns
2: you? I'm concerned about everybody. And that's what elections are about, everybody. Nobody taken for granted, complacent about nobody.
1: All right, we have a great panel to break this all down this morning. Amy Walter, The Cook Political Report, CNN's Jeff Zeleny, and Punchbowl's John Bresnahan. Good morning, everybody. Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, Happy Holidays. It's great for you guys to be here on this uh, holiday weekend. Um, Jeff, you've been traveling Iowa, as you often do in campaign (laughs) season, but you've been there this past week. What has been the fallout of all the Trump legal problems? Is there really an opening still for another candidate, or does Trump have this locked up?
5: Like Christmas, caucus time is the best time of the year for (laughs) us political reporters. So look, I mean, spending several days on the ground there uh, this week, and as well as uh, in recent weeks, there's no doubt. I mean, Donald Trump is the commanding figure in this race, really in every way. And one thing that uh, you heard his comments there, he's really urging people to vote. The biggest thing that worries them is not necessarily one of their rivals. It's complacency. The fact that, uh, you know, it could be freezing cold on Monday, January 15th. It's Martin Luther King uh, weekend. Some people might be traveling that weekend. They want to get their people to those caucus sites, and that's the name of the game. Uh, but what is so different this time is that the Trump campaign has an organization. They really have, uh, really are using all their metrics from, um, you know, the last eight years. Anyone who's attended a rally, anyone who's bought a hat, Anyone who has done anything Trump related has been contacted by the campaign. So they're organized with precinct captains and other things. The reason this matters is the caucuses are a game of organization. However, Nikki Haley is getting much bigger crowds than she ever has at this point. Ron DeSantis is still campaigning a ton. So the big questions are uh, half the Republicans or so want to turn the page. Are Haley and DeSantis going to split them, or could Haley pull a bit of a surprise in Iowa? which would um, sort of help her going into New Hampshire. So some open minds still, but at this point, it's getting people to those caucus sites. And the Trump campaign has a huge advantage.
1: Yeah, look, and as the story has been all year, and as it continues to be as we head into 2024, is Trump's legal problems. It's constantly the issue. He's going to be in court a lot this coming year. And the question is going to be, how does that impact his race, especially if one of these these cases turns out particularly bad for him, like a conviction? Just to look at his calendar here. This is a very complicated calendar. It could change because the trial dates can change. The votes won't the, Timing of the caucuses and primaries won't change. You see on your screen there, the red are the cases that he faces. The orange are the, the different primaries. His team has complained about this impacting his ability to campaign here. What was interesting too in this past week was a poll by the, the New York Times about should uh, asking about Trump's legal problems. 62% of Republican voters believe that Trump should still remain as a Republican nominee if he is convicted. But the 32% could be interesting, too, for Biden, especially if this happens in a general election.
6: Yeah, for sure. And the the other question about that 32% are those Republicans who already say we want to turn the page Mm -hmm. on Donald Trump, who are attracted to people like Nikki Haley, for example. To me, the hardest part about that question is it is so theoretical. So many voters believe two things, one, or think two things. Is this really happening? Are we really going to have a Trump and Biden showdown? Mm -hmm. They are incredulous. They They do not believe it's going to happen until they actually see those two assuming the nomination, winning the nomination. They believe there could be an opening for another candidate to be a nominee. And the second is it is really hard to ask people to assume something about a future event and how they're going to react to that. And so uh, these are Interesting questions, you can put them on a poll, but I don't think they're really telling us just what the situation would look like for voters going into the voting booth in November.
1: Yeah, that's really gonna be the big question as we head into the new year. How much is this set in? Are the people who are really tuned in right now just the political junkies, right. people who are really into it? Are they the average voters, low information voters? When do they really start to make their decisions here? Now, this all comes as we have seen just over the past year, it's just been, you know, remarkable to see Trump's rhetoric and this campaign season just He's always had very dark rhetoric on the campaign trail. That's been his appeal to his base in particular, but it's gotten much darker in a lot of ways. And just listen
3: to it. For
4: those who have been wronged and betrayed,
3: I am your retribution. I am your retribution. We will root out the communists, Marxists, fascists, and the radical left
4: thugs that live like vermin within the confines of our country. They're poisoning the blood of our country. That's what they've done. They don't like it when I said that, and I never read
0: Mein Kampf.
1: Now, that last one was the January 6th uh, insur- the insurrectionists, jailed January 6th insurrectionists, alleged for their roles in January 6th. They sang the Pledge of Allegiance, Star Spangled Banner. Trump has played some of that in his rallies. John, is this a reflection of where the base is right now or is Trump going further than where the party
3: is? I think it's both. I mean, there's a large part of his base that is not bothered or even would support the, you know, the poisoning the blood comment. I mean, mm-hmm. if you're turning on, you know, TV nowadays and this network and others are showing what's happening at the border, it looks like a crisis that's I mean, he's playing into that, you know. Uh, it is a crisis. Uh, so, I mean, he's playing into that every day. I think, you know, Trump knows exactly what he's doing. I mean, this has started, if you go back to 2016, or 2015, he started He started attacking Muslims first, and then Mexicans. He started there with those comments. And, you know, at the time, we're like, oh, well, he's done. But, you know, that just made him stronger. He knows exactly what he's doing on this. He's playing to these, to, to the fears of, you know, a, a, a large portion of the Republican Party, a large portion of the American electorate, and he plays their fears. And you know, he talks about "I am your retribution." I mean, mm-hmm. you know, he, what did he say? I'm when his his uh, uh, inaugural speech. If you go back to that, if you go back to his 2016 acceptance speech, I mean, he's you know, he plays to the far right. This this dark vision of America, and that's what he's always done.
6: But that's and that's what's so yeah. fascinating. Your point, Jeff, about how better organized the campaign is they are much they are much more professional campaign than they've ever been. Mm-hmm. But you, they can't do the one thing <laughs> that needs to be done, which is to get Trump focused on the group of voters he needs to win an election who are not part of his base. Yeah, to get those swing voters, and so. Even in all the polling we've seen in these states come out over the last few months, what you see is obviously Biden's number is, is down significantly from where he was in 2020, but Trump's number hasn't gone up. He's still kind of stuck where he was in 2020, and part of that is that, yes, he's got the base fired up and around him, but swing voters they still remember what they didn't like about Donald Trump, and he's not trying to bring them in with this language.
1: And the question is whether or not Biden can get those very much swing voters that that you're talking about. One of the questions has been all along, Bob, for Biden is, that you talk to Democrats about is what is exactly the message has we had in 2021? Why do should voters give him four more years besides just being not Donald Trump, which is they hope the contrast really boosts him? This was actually asked uh, to uh, voters in a focus group. There were North Carolina men who voted for Trump in 2016, Biden in 2020. It was a focus group run by a company called Engages. This is what those voters
3: said. They need to be more articulate. They they need to do a better job. And they have time to do that still between now and Election Day.
0: With Tim, it's just kind of like he's in the background. You don't really hear a whole lot about what's going on. I don't know. It's just, it just there's not a whole lot that stands out about his presidency. So to me, it's kind of been a letdown um, as opposed to what I thought it would be like.
1: So, Jeff, how does Biden confront that dilemma in 2024?
5: It's the big challenge, but every day, trying to make it a contrast with Donald Trump uh, and slowly hope some of those infrastructure projects and all the stuff they actually have done um, are noticed by people. But look, prescription drugs are less, insulin is less, but no one's paying attention. Biden has not broken through, and some people, frankly, have stopped listening to him.
1: Yeah, and that is really gonna be the challenge. When will they start listening to him? Maybe they'll change. The focus will certainly in 2024. Okay, up next, a challenging year for a historically unproductive Congress with a lot more to worry about on the way.
0: This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish.
1: A government shutdown looms in early January, two wars abroad, and a migrant crisis at the southern border. So what did the 118th Congress do? Well, naturally, they left town for the holidays and won't return till the second week in January. But when they get back, things are bound to get much more difficult, and this divided Congress does not have the best track record of solving major problems.
5: It's, it's pretty shocking in part because it represents the whiplash from one of the most productive congresses in the last century to what is unquestionably the least productive congress that I've ever experienced. And it's, it's reflective of what happens when people land in leadership who fundamentally don't know how to negotiate and don't know how to, um, how to govern.
1: This indeed has been a historically unproductive Congress with unprecedented events like the paralyzed House after a speaker was ejected by his colleagues for the first time in history. But the neighbors also numbers also don't paint a favorable picture. This year, fewer than 30 pieces of legislation have been enacted. The 118th Congress is far off the pace of the last two Congresses, which passed more than 300 laws over two years. The last time we saw this current party divide with the Democratic Senate, Republican House, under Democratic White House, that was the 113th Congress a decade ago under President Obama. Of course, that, too, was more productive than this one. Uh, John, you're in the halls every day with me talking to lots of members. This Things are going to get a lot harder, just to, for viewers to know, with the things that are, are on the docket here. Uh, funding deadlines that are coming up on January 19th and February 2nd. You have also issues such as dealing with the FAA programs and surveillance laws, but the big ticket items, emergency aid for Israel and Ukraine, that hanging on the whether they get a deal on immigration and border policy. Things are just going to get... The question I guess I have is whether they're going to actually plunge the country
3: into yet another crisis come January. Oh, I think so. I mean, I've been covering the <laughs> Hill for 30 years. I've never seen it this bad. I mean, I can't remember anything where they're just... They just any they get any forward momentum, especially in the House, the, the, the hardline conservatives, they just try to pull their leadership in. They got rid of McCarthy after barely giving him the job. They're already agitating against Mike Johnson, who they thought was going to be their dream speaker. I mean, I, I just I don't see them going anywhere. Now, they hadn't cut a deal. We're three months into fiscal year 2024. The government's always trying to fund ahead. They still haven't agreed on how much they're going to spend in a yeah, year. That's the biggest question. Yeah, exactly. And then in, and you're talking about the deadline, January 19th, there's a partial government shutdown, February 2nd is a, is another. I mean, got to decide on Ukraine, they've got the surveillance law, they've got FAA reauthorization. The only thing they've done is just kicked everything into next year. It's the worst-run worst, worst run Congress yeah. I've ever and done. And they may do it again, and they may yeah. punch it into cra- yeah. There's a, Even just extending government
1: funding will be a very yeah. complicated task <laughs> yeah. in January. But you, know, you talk to Republicans and Democrats, so you just ask them, has this been a productive Congress? The answer universally is the same.
2: Has this been a productive Congress? No. It's, it, I've been here five years, and the biggest surprise, everybody says, what's your biggest surprise up here? That I was not surprised. The institution is not functioning the way it should be.
4: All of these issues shouldn't be kicked down the road. It's a shame when you get into the political cycle, everything kinds of, all, they blame it on politics. Well, politics is in everybody's life. Make it work. Get people that want to make it work. Put term limits on it so we don't end up staying here for life. That's I think all this should happen. But the, the
1: split Congress has not been productive. This has not been. I mean, he says put term limits on, but perhaps the problem is that there are all these other new members who don't really, they don't have the experience. Yeah, yeah the
6: issue, I don't think, is the infrastructure. Uh, the issue is that the incentive structure is broken. And when just a handful of people can decide that they want to throw sands in, sand in the gear. They can get away with it. There's there's no consequence for that behavior. Mm-hmm. And you um, also have, I just was struck by, the number of members of Congress who are saying, we're, pro- we're not productive. We're doing a terrible job. Oh, by the way, re-elect me. Right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, so yeah. Yeah, that's a difficult message to put on the trail, but it's, it is where we are. And that's why yeah. I think you have so many voters who truly are absolutely tuned out of this election and why we may see a different conversation going on at the presidential level mm-hmm. than we're seeing at the down ballot level, where it's Republicans who are going to have to answer for much of this dysfunction. And
1: before you jump in, Jeff, I wanted to just show viewers the just how, what about experience in Congress. Uh, this is the House average tenure in the 118th Congress. 31% have less than two years of experience that actually number has grown in the past couple of congress 23 just 23 percent have more than 12 years of congress and also of note 85 house republicans served in washington before trump was inaugurated in 2017 that could tell the story as well it
5: definitely tells the story and that number is going to uh, just intensify because all the retirements I and mean, one thing i'm struck by um not being in the halls of congress as much uh, this is Cycle, But over the years certainly watching it from afar the retirements are extraordinary as you guys know So this is only going to change, but I think we all would have been stunned if uh, in the days after October 7th We would have said that we were going to end the year without any funding for Israel It just would have been astounding. I mean that was of the whole speakers fight the speaker has to get elected so that and it just Hasn't happened now there are many issues why? Obviously, the White House is trying to tie a border security to it uh, to get things through. But uh, I think January, January 19th, which comes between the Iowa caucuses and the New Hampshire primary, the government, you know, is likely to shut down or may well shut down. So I guess they've saved Christmas. But boy, next month is a mess.
3: Can, I mean, two things. One is there's an ongoing fight inside the Republican Party. There's been a war inside the Republican Party since the Tea Party movement. Yeah. I mean, they're electing people are getting elected to Congress who don't believe in That's government. Right. And they don't care. They think government is the problem. I mean, we saw it with Reagan, but now they really think government is the enemy. And I think the other thing here is that what struck me, though, is Biden hasn't taken advantage of this to the degree he should be. He should be just killing these guys every day. I mean, and. The do-nothing Congress. Every day he should be out there pounding them. They're going to impeach me when they can't even fund the government. You know, and he's not doing it. I just, I. Sometimes I just I just can't believe that they're letting this opportunity get away. They've had months where they could have just killed these guys. It's such a good point because I remember when Obama yeah. was yeah. getting
1: criticized by Democrats for not going after yeah. House Republicans because he would ask he criticized de- Congress as a whole and Democratic leaders like Harry Reid the late Harry Reid would mm-hmm. say attack Republicans in Congress. He should be in these districts. districts. He should be in their
3: states every day or somebody should be and they're not taking advantage of it. I think it's a huge squandered opportunity yeah. for the White House. And we'll see. Look. Impeachment
1: is on the table for House Republicans in 2024. We'll see if they go that route and see if President Biden takes advantage of it politically. Okay, up next, the Mar-a-Lago meeting that could make or break Montana's, Montana's GOP primary and hold the key to the next Senate majority. Loyalty goes a long way with Donald Trump. And that's what's playing out in what could be the nation's most important Senate race. Montana Congressman Matt Rosendale, one of the hardline conservatives who pushed out Kevin McCarthy from the speakership, is taking steps to run for the Senate. But that's prompting fears from GOP leaders who believe that Rosendale would be a weak general election candidate and he could cost them their chance to knock off Democratic Senator John Tester. Senate Republican leaders instead are backing military veteran and businessman Tim Sheehy. And my new reporting with my colleague Elena Train, outlines how Republican leaders are trying to highlight the timing of both candidates' endorsements of Trump, as both make their case to the front-runner and possible kingmaker for who to support in a race pivotal to the Senate majority. Now, Sheehy endorsed Trump back in the spring, but Rosendale did so just weeks ago. So when I asked Rosendale why he waited so long to endorse Trump, he said it was strategic.
3: There's a lot of people that uh, rushed out at the beginning of it. And I didn't need to be a part of the big crowd. I just uh, wanted to make sure that it stood out as a, a single endorsement, and it would have more impact. That seemed to annoy.
1: That seemed to annoy the president. We're told that you waited this long.
3: He didn't seem to. He didn't convey that message to me.
1: Did you meet with them on uh, last week when you're in Mar-a-Lago? When I was in Mar-a-Lago, I sure did. What did you? See? Did you ask for his endorsement in the Senate race? I will never uh, discuss my
3: conversations with the president uh, with any media.
1: I mean, this is a fascinating race. The primary is so significant here. Just so viewers understand that the dynamic here in the United States. There are 23 Democratic seats that they are defending. That includes a purple state like Arizona. That's where Kirsten Sinema serves. He caucuses with Democrats. 11 GOP seats are being defended. But there are seven seats currently held by Democrats in purple swingish states as well as three in Trump states, Trump states that Trump won, and really two, only two pickup opportunities, Florida and Texas. So Democrats are trying to hold on to all yeah. these seats. If they lose Montana, that could be the end of the majority. And that's why Republicans are fearful of this primary. I talked to Senator, Senator John Thu, who is number two Senate Republican, about the prospects of Matt Rosendale impacting this primary and potentially their chance of picking up the seat. You worry that Rosendale could put the seat at risk?
3: Well, I mean, I think it changes the dynamic for sure in Montana. But like I said, I think Uh he's very well positioned to win both primary and general. Uh Um, And uh, he's done a really effective job so far in moving numbers out there. So we'll see what happens. You you can't, you know, you
4: can't, you can't control these things. The voters make those decisions, but um, we feel like uh, we're we're in a good spot there.
1: It seems like Rosendale is running in this race. He's made all the steps that he will. What kind of impact is that going to have in the fight for the Senate?
6: So I think the way to look at the fight for the Senate is Montana is very critical. As you said, it's one of the just handful of red states that uh, Democrats have to defend. But there are seven that they have to defend. And right now with West Virginia basically off the table, um, that means the Senate right now is 50-50. And if Donald Trump wins the presidency, the Senate is already... In Republican hands so the math is more than Montana it's that Democrats need to go seven for seven Montana looks the easiest because it's red and, it's and Ohio easy. is yeah. the next because also it's red <laughs> um, but uh, the easy for Republicans I'm yes. sorry easiest to, to to knock for Republicans sure. to knock off because those are red but even if you say okay well let, let's say Demo- tester holds on Democrats still have to be able to hold on to Ohio and Arizona and Pennsylvania and, and Wisconsin and Nevada and like. Yeah, just it's
1: really finish. tough, and so part of the Democratic strategy, is the DSCC chairman uh, Gary Peters, he told me that this is uh, they're they're they, they're fine with competitive primaries. They need primaries to go their way. In other words, Republicans to nominate candidates that they believe are unelectable in the general election. And what's been fascinating is the maneuvering around Trump. He backed a lot of candidates yeah. who were. Weak in the last cycle, in the midterms, the Democrats held on to the Senate. This time, they're trying to align themselves with Donald Trump. So the Trump loyalty factor means a lot for Republican leaders like, te- like Steve Daines, who is the uh, chairman of the Republican Senatorial Committee. I asked him about the timing of Rosendale's endorsement. He, he, this is what Steve Daines told me. He said, well, Tim Cheehy endorsed President Trump in April it's a pretty late endorsement for Matt Rosendale. Mm-hmm. This time he sees the inevitable that President Trump will be the nominee. I like Matt Rosendale. I hope he stays in the House, <clears throat> excuse me, and builds seniority. It was interesting. I mean, Rosendale was in, in Mar-a-Lago oh, yeah. and he did a fundraiser there. He shook hands with Trump. He tweeted about that image. I mean, it's Trump is still such a heavy presence in these primaries.
3: Oh, he's gonna be the nominee, or he's likely to be the Republican nominee. So, um, yeah, I think your Amy's point is great, I, I think in this particular race it's so interesting because montana is such a small state tester john tester the democratic incumbent is popular yeah. and could win that race i think ohio is much more difficult because yeah. that will be you know be lots of ads there and they don't vote the voters there as good as sherrod brown is a candidate he, it's harder for him to to carry ohio i think this is going to be a race if democrats can win one of these seats i think it's because tester can do it on his personality. If you watch the yeah. ads, he's running. You know, I'm still the farmer from he's got know, the brand. Yeah, exactly yeah. I mean, that's where I mean, I think it's much more difficult in Ohio. I think Arizona is a huge problem for them also holding onto that seat. Mm-hmm. And as Amy said, I mean, you know, West Virginia's gone. It's off the yeah. map. With Manchin gone, it's just as is, you know, the, the, again, there's a primary there, but it's going to be a Republican who's and, going to win that. And yeah.
1: Democrats won't admit it to you, even if they they, they want Matt Rosendale to be hey, the nominee. Uh, you know, right. Tester told me... are a Yeah, so, so that's, I was just about to say TV that.
3: ...for They're, the part of the right. Ex, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know,
1: because um, John Tester told me, it doesn't matter, I and mean, it doesn't matter who the candidate is that I'll face. Right. Now, there is a super PAC, a mysterious super PAC, called the Last Best Place Pack. It spent $1.6 Million dollars going after Sheehy so far in this, you know, pretty early in this race. And as President said, a small state in terms of uh, media markets. That is a significant amount of money. This is some of the ads that have been spent here. I asked the the Senate Majority Pack, which is tied to Chuck Schumer, whether they were involved with this effort. Uh, They declined to comment. Uh, The NRSC, the Republican Senatorial Committee chair uh, spokesman, told me that it's clearly run by Chuck Schumer's allies, but it's clearly a sign that. Democrats recognize that they could need to either make it easier for Rosendale to get in the race or go after the guy they're concerned about very early.
5: Sure. I mean, a lot of Democrats have long played in Republican primaries. That's how you affect the outcomes. And a lot of uh, veteran Democrats uh, now have houses in Montana, so that is a very interesting uh, state from, from a Rahm Emanuel to others. Anyway, I'm not saying he's behind this, but one thing that is different about Trump this time, he went to Montana in 2018 to try and get Matt Rosendale elected several times right. and they lost. So he's more experienced coming into this. He's not endorsing some like random candidates anymore. So that's a different dynamic yeah. here. Uh, but be look- much
1: more careful this cycle.
5: Without a doubt, yeah. because he is now, you know, sort of seeing how some of these elections go. But uh, John Tester won in 2018 when there was not a presidential race on the ballot. The top of the ticket is going to make a big difference here. Uh, boy, it is, we cannot say enough how difficult it is for Democrats facing this uh, Senate yeah, map. It's just, uh, a tough map.
1: And just as you mentioned, these are the Senate candidates that Donald Trump has endorsed this cycle. Not many, you know, not many, not unlike last cycle, he stayed out of some of them. And in, in those races, really only, uh, you know, Ohio was the one that was a contested primary. The Republican Central Committee has stayed out of that primary. So that is not in odds with the GOP leaders. The one in West Virginia is in line with GOP leaders. But there is also the battle for the House. The, the Republicans clearly favored in the Senate. The question is going to be the House. Democrats, it's a narrow majority. They seem to be favored, but there's these questions about redrawing lines in districts. That is such a huge issue. Yes, it's in the weeds. Yes, it is something that plays out. It's hard to see, uh, but it has such a significant. Impact and just look at the states in which these issues, these district lines could be redrawn because of court battles or because of courts have ordered them to go ahead and do so. There are 13 states that in which in in 2024 where they'll have to redraw these lines and that will could absolutely impact which party is in power come 2025. So significant, and you cover this so so closely. Who is at the advantage here when it comes to these redistricting battles? You know,
6: at the end of the day, it may just be a wash yeah. uh, mm-hmm. because Republicans have a significant advantage in North Carolina, which is it's a it was a political redraw, and it's going to net Republicans three maybe four seats. Um, Republic, uh, Democrats may get another shot at New York and be able to get some seats there, and then you've got the courts coming in in places like. Louisiana, maybe Florida, um, and definitely Alabama. So at the end of the day, maybe it's one seat for one side or one seat for the other side, but when you have a majority of 5 seats, yes. every one of these matters.
1: It's so interesting. So many so few seats are yes. at play. Yes. You would think with so many 435 seats would be a lot more, they really aren't. So we'll see such a huge year ahead. All right, coming up, I'll talk to David Axrod on how Biden may may be able to overcome his battleground state struggles. And why is a lawmaker on Capitol Hill, why is he teed off at one of the world's best golfers? From executive producers, Park chan and Robert Downey Jr., The Sympathizer is the new HBO original limited series based on the Pulitzer Prize winning novel of the same name. Join me, Philip Nguyen, a scholar of Vietnamese American culture and the cast and crew as we discuss the making of this historic series. Subscribe now to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and stream HBO's The Sympathizer starting April 14th exclusively on Max. Joining me now is David Axelrod, a CNN senior political commentator, of course the chief strategist for the 2008 and 2012 Obama campaigns, President Biden, though, has struggled to rebuild the coalition that propelled him to victory in 2020. So we're gonna discuss the warning signs that Biden is facing in some of these key battleground states that he narrowly won in 2020. Just to, David, as we, just to remind our viewers about how, where he, Joe Biden versus Donald Trump came down just four years ago. This is how Michigan, how narrow it was in Michigan. And look at Wisconsin, just the yeah, tightest- razor thin. razor thin, Pennsylvania the same. to 48.8, 49% for the former president. And as well in Nevada here, 50 to 47. And you mentioned also Arizona. Such a tight race there. So what does Joe Biden have to do to deal with the coalition of voters? I mean, a state like Michigan, for instance, you have a combination of the progressive voters, the Muslim voters angry about the way he handled the Israeli-Hamas war. How does he rebuild that same coalition?
4: Yeah, look, these are the warnings. As you say, these are warning signs in the early uh, polling uh, young people uh, who uh, he won overwhelmingly, running about even African-American voters. He won them by 75% last time. Uh, now he's leading by 50% Hispanic voters. Uh, and then you have nuances like this in, in Michigan where uh, there's a, a, a large Arab-American population in the area around Detroit. Yeah,
1: right around here, around Dearborn, and, right around and, Detroit. And
4: a lot of disquiet about the president's uh, strong support uh, for Israel in the, in the current war. So that adds a nuance. But in the main, uh, he needs to not only uh, win back uh, some of those he's lost, but a lot of this has to do with motivation. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if he gets the numbers up among, say, African-American voters in Detroit, He also has to get the turnout, so enthusiasm uh, is important, and in these marginal races, uh that can make a difference
1: yeah and look this is you mentioned enthusiasm wisconsin is a perfect example of that he's yes. wisconsin Ma- madison home of uh, a great university the university of wisconsin my alma mater of course and do they the, claim you i think they, do. they they i claim them as well <laughs> and milwaukee a huge liberal population a central part well, of the state a little bit more of a swing area in western wisconsin well i think the a thing little thing bit more the,
4: rural a lot depends on the suburban vote in milwaukee and a lot depends on turnout in the city of Milwaukee. And those are two things that you got to watch. And the other element, you talk about uh, Madison. Uh, this is where the third party candidates become a concern. You know, back in 2016, Donald Trump won Wisconsin. And part of the reason he won it was because Jill Stein, who's running again now on the Green Party uh, line, was running then and got more uh, votes than the margin between Trump and Hillary Clinton. And a lot of it came from Madison where progressives voted, uh, voted for her. Now you, she's back. Uh, Cornell West, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, uh, progressive African-American, former Harvard professor, is running as an independent. Uh, Robert Kennedy Jr., kind of a wild card. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, right-wing populist in some ways, but very uh, aggressive supporter of climate uh, action. Uh, so. Uh, these are these are challenges for should, should, should for the
1: buying should the Biden team
4: address those third party candidates head on or should they just ignore it? No, I don't think that they can. Well, I think they should discourage them for one. Uh, uh, you know, for one thing, there's still this open question about the no-labels party, Mm -hmm. and we don't know who that candidate would be. My view, uh, generally, is that third-party candidates are more helpful to Trump than Biden, because Trump has a high floor and a low ceiling, Mm -hmm. uh, and anything that lowers that threshold that you need to win, I think, favors uh, Trump. And look, another part of the coalition
1: Hispanic voters. You're seeing the real concern, Hispanic voters. Look yes. at Nevada. I mean, yes. this is such a key part of the state, two key parts of the state, Las Vegas, Reno. They need to carry those two. Really, the rest of the state is a pretty Republican state. But the problem is the Hispanic voters in a state like Nevada, Arizona too, that's been a problem for Joe Biden. How does he turn that around? Well, you've
4: seen, you've seen recent uh, polling in Nevada and uh, you know Trump has been done well in a couple of early polls. We're almost a year out. So, you know, you have to sort of set those aside. But the reason is that uh, is the Hispanic uh, vote. And just g- generally, nationally, uh, you know, Biden got 65 percent of that vote in 2020. And there he's running just a few points ahead of, uh, of Trump. So ha- solving that problem is a big part of the equation. And it's going to be very important in the state of Nevada. Only six electoral votes, Mm -hmm. but in a marginal race, that can be the difference. And look, a tight race also could happen in Georgia. Georgia, of course, has
1: seen a demographic shift in there, but still black voters are very significant for Joe Biden. Um, And you look at the exit polls from 2020, where Joe Biden did very well with black voters, and then overall, you look at his favorability among African-American voters. It's significantly worse. Why do you think that is?
4: Um, I think a lot of it ha- is among younger, uh, younger black men uh, have become uh, disenchanted, don't feel like uh, uh, enough has been done uh, to follow up on commitments to uh, the community. I think there's dis- disaffection because more wasn't done on voting rights. There, there, are, there are a series uh, of issues. So again, here, it's a matter of, uh, of, of, of not just recapturing some of that vote, but also mobilization. Mm-hmm. And uh, turnout is gonna be very, very important. Uh, and uh, you know the thing that's, in, that, that's working in Biden's favor is that uh, these, uh, he is not losing among sort of white voters. His, his working class white vote is about what it was four years ago. He does pretty well with older voters, but the young, Uh, And particularly young African Americans in this case, uh, younger Hispanic voters, and so on, Um, a problem for him.
1: Yeah, and a problem if they sit out the election, not necessarily vote for Trump, but they sit out. That's going to be. Remember, this was
4: well famously, uh, Trump knew exactly Mm. the number of votes that he lost in this state, and it was under 12,000 votes. Yeah. So uh, you know, small turnout, uh, small changes in turnout, can have enormously important impact.
1: And you would know That's- firsthand thank you david axrod for joining us next more inside politics sunday stay tuned congress has a long history of investigating america's sports from steroids in baseball to the nfl and concussions and now pro golf when the pga tour said this summer it would merge with saudi-owned live golf it shocked the golf world and angered some on capitol hill The chair of the Senate Subcommittee on Investigation, Senator Richard Blumenthal, announced hearings and subpoenaed Liv's Saudi backers, investigating what he calls an attempted Saudi takeover of sports in an attempt to whitewash their image.
2: It's about much more than sports. It is a uniquely American interest and institution that potentially is going to be betrayed and exploited by the Saudis to sportswash their image cover up their human rights abuses and other kinds of wrongdoing and create an image that is totally incorrect and inaccurate. And I think that American institutions and interests are at stake here.
1: And this month, another shocker. One of the world's elite golfers and master champion, John Rom, said he would join the Saudi-run tour. And after previously call, previously calling the merger a, quote, Betrayal from management. Don't you think that when you saw the master champion and one of the best golfers in the world, John Rahm, who had said that this merger between P- PGA and Live was a betrayal, later, just mo- days ago, sign on with the Live Golf?
2: There have been a lot of reversals. That's what money does sometimes.
1: And here's what Blumenthal told me about the PGA Tour commissioner, who was once a furious Live Golf critic himself.
2: As much as John Rom did a hundred and eighty degrees turn, Jay Monahan's turn was even more dramatic. You think that he needs to come up here and testify, Monahan? I'd like to see Jay Monahan potentially come here to testify.
1: The Senator says the investigation is now taking a broader look at Saudi Arabia's attempt to influence Americans. That's it for Inside Politics Sunday. Up next, State of the Union with Jake Tapper and Dana Bash. Thanks again for sharing your Sunday morning with us. Merry Christmas. and We'll see you next time.
0: When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level.